from the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Now to your hosts, Kalita Leaquat and Kate Wilson. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Kalita Leaquat. We are kicking off our second podcast season by covering self-care, mindfulness, meditation, and other tools genetic counselors can use to tackle the new year. Join us as my co-host Kate Wilson sits down with Katrina Hitman, PhD student and clinical assistant professor at the University of British Columbia. Because of my own experience, I can see clearly how genetic counseling programs attract very driven individuals, often perfectionists. I just see a lot of vulnerability in genetic counselors and genetic counseling students, and I'm really motivated to try and reach out to support them. And Colleen Kalashew, lead genetic counselor and clinical assistant professor at the Stanford Center for Inherited Cardiovascular Disease. I really think that in order to care well for our patients, we really have to first take care of ourselves. Take it away, Kate. So we're talking to Katrina Hitman. Hi, Katrina. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I know that you have had a passion for mental health as well as working with other genetic counselors and other professionals about reducing stress in their work life. And so one of the questions that I wanted to ask was, why is mental health and reducing burnout for genetic counselors important to you? Absolutely. Partly why I'm so passionate about mental health for genetic counselors is because of my own experience. When I was in the genetic counseling program, I started having panic attacks that were increasing in frequency. I didn't recognize that that's what they were at the time, actually. And then by the end of the program, I I had an episode of depression. And I think, you know, reflecting on it now, I can see clearly how genetic counseling programs attract very driven individuals, often perfectionists. I consider myself a recovering perfectionist. And you have to be just to get in. And we put so much pressure on ourselves in that competitive process. And that just doesn't disappear when we enter the program or when we graduate. And I was fortunate enough that I had a supervisor in the genetic counseling program who actually used the word anxiety to describe what I was experiencing, which was the first time that I'd heard that, even though I'd been to the doctor. And it was really a bit of a light bulb moment for me. But it was still only three years after I graduated that I was diagnosed with panic disorder and recurrent depression. And my mental health is now well managed with an antidepressant and a wonderful therapist and self-care strategies, but I just see a lot of vulnerability in other genetic counselors and genetic counseling students, and I'm really motivated to try and reach out to support them in that. Yeah, and and thank you for sharing that story. I will say I can relate. Um, That was actually the same thing. In graduate school, I was diagnosed with anxiety and realized it had been something that I had probably had most of my life but didn't really realize it. And so I think it's helpful to share some of those challenges. So having gone through that, how do you take care of yourself 
today? How do you do it on a daily basis? Absolutely. Yeah. My understanding of what self-care means has really changed a lot over time. Back when I first started thinking about it kind of in undergrad, I thought of it as more what I think of now as treats, um, kind of going to the spa, which I still do love, or having cake with friends or that kind of thing, which is great. But it's not the same because now, and when I think about self-care, I think about my energy and how taking care of energy is a marathon, not a race. And I ask everybody to think about what can you do daily to bring yourself joy? And when I shifted to that kind of mindset, it really helped me identify things that I could do to try to lower stress levels on an ongoing basis rather than trying to have kind of a bit more band-aid type solutions where, sure, maybe I feel really relaxed after having that pedicure, but that goes away pretty fast. And so about three years ago, I started a meditation practice and have now integrated that into part of my wind down routine at night before bed. And that also helps with sleep. So it's kind of a, a double bonus. And I've also, I made the conscious choice to stop checking email on my way to and from work and at my lunch half hour break. And instead I've switched to reading for pleasure. So I've always loved that and found it to be really um, therapeutic. And, uh, and so this is a way that I can integrate that into my daily life in, in these sort of like small chunks, but those little pieces add up to a lot over time. Well, and like you said, it helps you set boundaries for yourself. By setting those, you're doing a way to take care of yourself. And there's something that you can enact every day along with the meditation and really spinning your energy wisely. So one of the things I know you had told me about was to make sure that you spend your energy in a productive way, not a way that increases burnout, was talking about knowing your vision, your mission, your values. So what's important to you? So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about how writing and verbalizing those things have helped you reduce stress. Yeah, when I first graduated as a genetic counselor, I got right on the yes train, saying yes to every opportunity and creating opportunities. And the problem is that indiscriminately taking on everything is not strategic. It's more of a scattershot approach. And yes, it led to a lot of great connections and it gave me lots of energy from some of the projects, but other things that I got involved with more drained my energy and led nowhere. So that got me thinking over time, how do I tell when an opportunity that comes up is going to give me energy versus one that's going to drain my energy? And just how do I screen opportunities to decide whether to, to engage with them or not? And I did some reading and, and talked to my mentors and ended up kind of having an epiphany moment that having my own strategic plan would be really helpful when I'm trying to prioritize and trying to figure out, is this something that's going to be in line with what I'm trying to do right now? And if it's in line with that bigger picture, then I'm more likely to get energy from it. And I sat down maybe a year ago now or so, I made my own strategic plan, kind of pushing past the imposter syndrome of, you know, who am I to, to have a strategic plan and, uh, you know, my own vision and mission and uh, really reflected on my values. And it has been tremendously helpful. And the magic of having 
mission and vision is that not only are you better able to screen those opportunities that arise to say, you know, is this going to be fitting with what I'm doing right now? But it also helps me feel connected to that bigger picture and lifts me out of the daily grind aspect of work and sees more how each of the little things that I'm doing adds up to that bigger goal. And I think that's so important is thinking about your values or your focus or your goals, because I think as genetic counselors, we want to help in so many ways. And that's great. But at the same time, we also have to be helpful to ourselves. And by having those values, like you said, it gives yourself permission to either set those boundaries or becomes more of a system of energy management. So you're putting your energy where it needs to be. One of the things that I've heard you talk some about too is self-compassion. And so I think having that, that strategic plan for yourself also fits into self-compassion because it helps make you a priority. So I wondered if you could talk more about self-compassion and why is that so important? That's a beautiful way of thinking about it. In really simple terms, self-compassion is being kind to yourself. And it sounds maybe a bit cheesy. I'm not trying to make it sound easier than it actually is because it can be really hard sometimes to be kind to yourself. I think it's way too easy for us to fall into critical ways of thinking. And I think it's partly in our culture, there's a lot of drive to be better, to be stronger, to produce more. And I think that can really feed into mentality of I'm not enough, I'm not doing enough, I'm not worthy. And you don't even necessarily hear yourself thinking those things. But I, I've started to really tune in to that soundtrack in my head, noticing how often I'm saying, you know, that's stupid. Why did I think that? Or why did I say that? Or who am I to have this or to do that? And try to catch myself in those negative thoughts and just gently challenge myself to say, maybe it is okay. Maybe I am really the best person for this job or to speak about this thing in the media. And I think being kind to ourselves is really key in being able to conserve our energy and not work against ourselves to drain our energy based on a lot of research by Kristen Neff, the first step with self-compassion is just recognizing that you're going through something difficult. And it's only when you've actually identified that, that you can then be kind to yourself. And it can be all too easy to just get caught up in the daily treadmill of all of the things that you're trying to achieve. Like you said, Kate, genetic counselors, we try to do so much. It's important, I think, to remember that what you're trying to do is hard and it's a lot. And so being kind to yourself and positively reinforcing that you're doing good work is, is really important. And I think that that self-compassion piece is so important. Like you said, being kind to yourself, you know, I think of it as terms of being my own friend or some of the things I say to myself, I would never say to a friend. So why do I have these expectations or this unrealistic way of talking to myself? And I would also say Kristen Neff, I think, is, is a great resource. Are there tips or resources that you have for genetic counselors that are looking to reduce stress? Anything else that maybe we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, I would say a really simple tip is don't say yes to anything right away. 
And it can be so easy to, you know, you get a, a request in your email inbox or in person. And I think the gut reflexive response for many of us is, yeah, I'd love to do that. It'd be really exciting. And you love the person or you think it's really worthwhile that they're talking about or suggesting. But if you just take that little step to say, I will not say yes to anything right away. I always give myself the time and permission to reflect, ideally on mission and vision. But even if you don't have that, just in thinking about what you have going on in your life right now, and then just giving yourself that extra time. And it doesn't have to be long. You know, it could be a half an hour. It could be a day. And then it can kind of settle a little bit. And you can see, is this something that actually is a good fit for me right now? Or maybe it's an opportunity for somebody else. If it's something you think, man, this is really worthwhile. I don't want to say no because I want it to happen. Then maybe there's somebody else you know for whom this would be a really great fit that would be directly in line with what they're currently trying to do in life. Connected to that, and we've talked a little bit about this, but re-emphasizing to be mindful of where you are in terms of growth in different domains of your life. So respecting your own limits. If you've just had a baby, maybe it's not the best time to take on a significant change in your professional world. Or, or maybe it is because everyone's different. But the important thing is to pay attention to your own energy levels and to respect how much energy you're giving in the different areas of your life. I hate the work-life balance paradigm. And I feel like there's this artificial barrier that it puts up between saying that life does not involve work. I think work home is maybe okay, but you're a whole person and you have finite energy. It's not like you can say, well, I have these goals at home and I have these goals at work and, you know, maybe I haven't taken on enough at work. Well, if you've taken on a lot at home, then you maybe don't have enough energy to take on more things at work. So I would just encourage people and relating that back to the self-compassion is to be kind to yourself. If you feel like, well, I haven't accomplished anything new at work this year. First of all, is that really true? And then second of all, well, maybe you've been expending your energy in a growth curve in a different domain of your life. And I think that's so important to think about it as a whole uh, and not necessarily work or life because you're really both of those plus other things. So I think that that's a very helpful way to frame that. Are there any other additional resources or areas where genetic counselors can go to get more information? Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned Kristen Neff's website. She's at selfcompassion.org. Then there's also Susan Piver, who has the Open Heart Project, and she is just lovely. And I signed up to receive her emails once a week that are free and include guided meditation. And she's got a great approach in that it's very much not perfectionistic and focused on just do what you can and make this work however it works for you. And I really, I really loved that. And I actually got the recommendation for her from a fellow genetic counselor who I will also recommend, Megan Day, who has recently started her own company, Rooted and Vibrant. And her goal is to support, and it's specific to moms, but I do think it's relevant to a lot of the genetic counseling community, that to achieve the goals that they have in life. So she does coaching as well as some meditations in an online community. 
And as a genetic counselor, she has a deep understanding of the pressures faced by genetic counselors. And then the other one that I was going to mention was, it's a book that's called How to Be a Happy Academic. And now that makes it sound like it's only going to be relevant to professors. But actually, they talk at the beginning and put it in context as any knowledge workers. And I think the genetic counselors are knowledge workers. We stay on top of the latest evidence and translate that into clinical care. And so I think that is really a large part of what we do. And this book, I think, is really helpful in particular, there's an exercise that guides you in identifying your core values. So if anyone is interested in diving deeper into what are my top values and trying to come up with a vision and mission, then that can be one resource. And I'd be happy to get in touch if anyone wanted to talk through more of that. Well, thank you so much, Katrina. This has been extremely insightful, and I really appreciate you sharing not only your expertise, but your experience. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, I'm sitting down with Colleen Kalashew. Thank you for being here today, Colleen. Thanks for having me, Kate. One of the things that we had talked about is self-care and meditation, and you had mentioned how important both of those are to you. And so I wanted you to be able to tell our listeners a little bit more about self-care and meditation and why does that mean so much for you? Yeah, definitely. So I am a big believer in the idea that you have to put your own oxygen mask on first before you can assist others. You know, the um, classic thing you get in the safety briefing on an airplane. I really think that in order to care well for our patients, we really have to first take care of ourselves. And it's not even just about patient care. Of course, so many GCs now have roles that are not involving direct patient care. I think taking good care of yourself makes you able to be a more supportive colleague, attentive mentor, a good manager, a skilled leader. So I really think it's essential to us doing our jobs well as genetic counselors. It's not a bonus thing or a selfish thing. It's a necessity. In terms of meditation, I would say meditation is one tool that can be very effective for self-care. There's lots of evidence behind it, and it's something that can really help us to be grounded, be less reactive, to be able to take better care of ourselves so that we can then serve others well. And I like that description about putting the oxygen mask on first. And I think that's something that a lot of people in general, but genetic counselors specifically struggle with because we are so focused on patient care that sometimes we don't necessarily think about putting ourselves first or making sure that we're emotionally in the right space to be doing some of this challenging work. So you talked a bit about how meditation is one tool for self-care, and you mentioned a few things that meditation can help with. Can you tell me a little bit more about meditation? Definitely. Meditation is something that's been a key part of my professional and personal life for quite a while now. I, I started dabbling in it before grad school. And then I was really fortunate actually to have a genetic counseling mentor in grad school who was a meditation teacher. And so she helped me with how to integrate it into my professional life a lot. And I took some more training. And you know, for me now, I meditate 20 minutes a day, most days, not every day. That's part of self-care too, is not putting too much pressure on yourself to always do the things. 
One of the big questions is, what is meditation? I think there are many people, genetic counselors or otherwise, who might have some misconceptions from what they run into in the popular culture. It's not necessarily something that's spiritual or religious. I think you can even think of it more like exercise or fitness, a training or a strengthening of a certain skill set or mental muscle or habit. And what that skill is, is the ability to be aware, to be attentive, to be present and grounded and non-reactive. There's a quote from Viktor Frankl's uh, wonderful book, A Man's Search for Meeting, that I think really hits home for what meditation can do for us. And that quote is, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So meditation really gives us more access to that space in a daily moment-to-moment way. And then when I think about applying that to the genetic counseling world, that space is where we can be more present for our patients. We can enter their emotional world and, and sense it and empathize with it and establish an empathic connection. It's where we can pause before we send our reactive email when we get an email from a colleague. It's where we can get attuned with a student and really assess what is it that's holding them back from this next step. And it also allows us to have the self-awareness and insight and assessment to know how we need to take care of ourselves in a daily or moment-to-moment way as well. So it's, it's really sort of a, a foundational thing that can be developed and trained through regular meditation exercises that then serves us, I think, in a lot of ways. Thank you for talking to us more about that. It's something that I've struggled with is trying to just find time to incorporate it into my day-to-day. Like you said, part of it though is, is having forgiveness and not necessarily being rigid about it. So what recommendations do you have for people that are looking to start a meditation practice or figuring out how to incorporate it into their already working lives? Oh, that's such a good point. The notion of weight, you mean there's one more thing I need to fit into my day? How is that possible? I think there are a few tricks. Tackling the fitting it into your day question first. You don't need a ton of time. It's not like you need a half hour, 45 minutes of exercise. Meditation can make a difference in your life with just 10 minutes and not even necessarily every day. Maybe you start out saying, I'm going to do 10 minutes three times a week. So not trying to bite off more than you can chew, starting small and being self-compassionate and forgiving and flexible. And then we can look at some of the science on how people just build habits in general. How do you make something a routine part of your life? There's things like really making a commitment to the first period of time that you're really, that's where you're really applying your willpower and your self-control. Say, I'm going to really commit to this for the first month. And that allows that habit to form where you don't then have to use the willpower as much afterwards. Also anchoring it to something else in your day that's already habitual and routine. So is it um, 10 minutes right after you get out of the shower? 10 minutes after you put the kids to bed, if you're a parent, 10 minutes after your workout, something that makes it just tied into things you already do. And then there's the, how do you learn? How do you get started? I mean, it's a daunting thing. For those of us who work in hospitals or universities, there are a lot of academic institutions that actually have meditation classes often for free, sometimes for credit, which for the counseling students listening, that's kind of cool. There's also a myriad of apps that are available or online resources. 
where someone can just talk you through, you're kind of listening to an audio recording and they're telling you what to do. And then there's, of course, the, the research study that we have coming up that's for genetic counselors and genetic counseling students. You don't have to know how to do it, how to meditate. You don't have any experience. Part of what you get out of participating in the research study is resources to learn how to meditate and to make it a regular part of your life. Well, and I'm glad that you mentioned the study. So recently you and Marianne Campion won the the JEMF grant. So tell us a little bit more about that research study and what the goal is of the research study. Yeah, we were very grateful that the JMF advisory group selected us. It was a huge honor. It was definitely a life goal of mine to eventually have some research funded by that grant. So there's this huge evidence base in other populations for the benefits of meditation. And some of that is clinical populations, so people with a wide range of physical or mental illnesses or stressors, but also in healthy populations, people off the street, other health professionals, doctors, nurses, psychologists. This large literature that shows that meditation can help in many different ways, impacting a lot of different outcomes decreasing stress, decreasing burnout, decreasing anxiety and depression, improving senses of well-being, professional fulfillment. So there's a lot of good reason to think that we as genetic counselors would reap some similar benefits that other populations have from meditation, but that hasn't been tested yet. We've done one descriptive study that would suggest that that's the case, but that's of course not as strong evidence as doing an intervention study. So the goal of this study is to find out whether or not meditation can benefit genetic counselors and genetic counseling students, primarily in their professional well-being. But we're looking at a few other things like the key determinants of what makes you a good counselor with patients, things like empathy. And we're doing that through a randomized controlled trial where the people who are randomized to meditate will get help learning how to meditate and meditating regularly for a period of eight weeks so that we can help figure out whether or not this is indeed something that could be beneficial to us as genetic counselors and potentially even something that would have a benefit to our patients as well. I think that's so fascinating and I'm so glad to see that there is this study that will be enrolling and ongoing and I'm excited to see the results from it. You had mentioned a few times about genetic counselors and genetic counseling students and some of the challenges we face with the stressors of our job and what is somewhat unique about the role of the genetic counselor. So why do you think genetic counselors have this risk for burnout and for mental fatigue? Yeah, and we really do. There's lots of literature out there showing that we have a fairly high risk of sort of professional distress or poor well-being, whether that's burnout or compassion fatigue or whatnot. And there's some data from the NSGC PSS that of the clinical genetic counselors who counsel patients who have considered or left the profession, almost half of them cite burnout as a reason. That's so critical at a time when we are really trying to ramp up our workforce, you know? And so why is that? Really glad you asked that question. I think there's some obvious things. We're very caring, conscientious folks who tend to probably put others' needs ahead of our own and maybe don't necessarily yet have a culture in our profession that not only should we have permission to meet our own needs, but that we need to meet our own needs in order to be able to serve the needs of others. And then some of it's the content of the work, taking on patients' distress, their grief, their trauma. And then there's a lot of professional structure things, overwork, too much volume, not enough professional 
recognition, insufficient support staff, you know, having a big administrative burden. Not every genetic counselor is faced with each of those things, but all of those things are prevalent enough in our profession and they all put you at risk for burnout or mental or compassion fatigue. Yes, and I've seen some other studies that are similar, not with genetic counselors, but those in healthcare professions, also in the psychosocial counseling as well. So that's another reason why I'm glad to see more studies being done on genetic counseling, because it combines not only the healthcare aspect, but also the counseling aspect of it as well. So we talked about meditation, but what are some other things that genetic counselors can add to their toolkit that helps reduce burnout and helps them practice self-care? I think maybe I would talk about some of the things that I've done over the years. I really appreciated that I went to a training program where we actually had a class on self-awareness and we talked about self-care and we had one-on-one supervision, which really helped a lot with debriefing and digesting the difficult discussions that you're having with patients. And then when I got out of grad school, My first job, like many genetic counselors with this rapidly expanding profession, you take the leap right out of grad school. And I was the first cardiovascular genetic counselor in the entire state of California, the only one there for my institution. It was a brand new subspecialty. There were only a handful of us around the world. And I was a brand new grad. So it was really scary and definitely stressful. So I sought out Things like a cardiovascular genetic counselor mentors, a local institutional mentors. I started a peer supervision group. So trying to set up those supports and resources. And then for me, other times, a while later in my career, I really realized that there were things that were not going to change about my first job that were just not a good fit for me and pushed my buttons in a way that wasn't good for my well-being. And so I decided to make a job change. So sometimes self-care is like a really big lever that you pull. And then a ways down the road, when I had become a mom and I had peripartum depression and anxiety with my first child, when I went into my second pregnancy, I was very careful about really setting up things to take care of myself so that I could do my job well during that time and make sure that I was as healthy emotionally as I could be. So in addition to seeing a therapist regularly through that time and taking medication, I also pulled back on a lot of my professional commitments for that period of time. I stopped taking students. I was actually vice chair of the NSUC education committee at the time, and I pulled back from that. I didn't do my chair year because it was going to fall when I was in the vulnerable time. So those are some bigger things. And those are just my personal stories. And I share my personal stories because it's definitely not a one size fits all either for person or for stage of your career. I think you really have to be reassessing what you need. So in addition to those big things, I think they're kind of daily or weekly things, exercise, as we talked about already, meditation, maybe not taking work home, or you know, maybe for somebody else, it's the other way around. Maybe instead of you work only eight hours when you're in your office and then you're turned off the rest of the day, maybe instead you rearrange your schedule. Like today, I'm taking an hour out to go to my son's school, and so I put an hour in somewhere else. Also things like what refuels you, what restores you. So is that a hobby? Is that a certain kind of social connection? I love trail running. That's really big for me. I think, I think there are a lot of different things that we can use. The other I mentioned, of course, earlier was peer supervision. Yeah. And so I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit more about peer supervision. I know you and I had chatted a little bit about it and it was something that I was not overly familiar with. So I find that to be an interesting tool and one that 
would be useful, I think, especially looking at reducing stress on the professional side. Yeah, I think it's a really valuable tool. It's definitely one of my passions. I've been fortunate to be able to speak at a few genetic counseling conferences on it. So it is something that we have borrowed from our colleagues in psychology or social work. It's the idea that you get together with a group of your peers to debrief your case material. And sometimes that's, this case was really hard because of something the client brought. Sometimes that's, this pushed my buttons. I think I have countertransference here. Sometimes that's, there's a particular type of case that I'm continually being distressed by or having roadblocks in, or I want to get better at doing this particular thing. So it involves an element of professional growth, growth around your counseling skills, your self-awareness, but also there's a fair amount of support as well. And I really find a deep source of professional self-care or support for me at the times of my career when I've lapsed, I've really noticed the difference that it made in, in my stress and just how much my genetic counselor's soul feels fed after I've gone to that group and how helpful that group is for me when I'm dealing with really distressing cases. Now, of course, that all assumes that you know this is only applicable to genetic counselors who are directly counseling patients, but I don't think that's the case. I've heard murmurs of genetic counselors in industry or other settings starting to set up groups like this. Uh, and actually, in the leadership and management SIG, we're now talking about doing something similar that's about leading and managing. Because in all of these realms where genetic counselors are applying their skills and working, there is situation or case material or interactions that can be helpful to have a safe, confidential space with people who get it to be able to talk it through, debrief it, problem solve. So I think there's a lot of potential for that for our field. I think that's wonderful because I think I did a lot of that when I was in my last job being extremely involved with academia and student training. You do that a lot with your students and give them those forums for feedback, but it's not something I I necessarily appreciated reaching out to my peers and my colleagues Mm -hmm. and doing something back and forth. So I think that's great. And like you said, I think it is applicable not just to clinical GCs, but those that work in industry or research settings as well. I know we've talked about quite a few different ways to practice self-care. Is there any additional resources or any other articles or tools that you want to point out for genetic counselors? Yeah. Oh, there's so much, right? I think that the NSGC Connect program, NSGC's revamped mentorship program is a great thing for this. I think having a mentor or being a mentor can be a great form of self-care. You can also seek mentorship on self-care, and I'm a mentor on there. I would be happy to mentor anyone who's listening on self-care if they're wanting to up their game in this area. In addition to meditation, learning that through our study, which will start recruiting in the fall, there are lots of local resources. If you just look around at your institution or in your town, lots of places to learn how to meditate. For supervision, there was a series of articles in the JGC in the 2000s, I think, that talk about what peer supervision can look like. We also did an EBS at the last AC in Atlanta on this topic. And so if you want to get the recordings, and then I also have a side deck on supervision that I'd be happy to share. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your experience, but then also talking about 
the tools and ways that genetic counselors can empower themselves and start taking care of themselves so they can take care of their patients. Visit our show notes at www.nsgc.org podcasts to view more information on peer supervision. That concludes today's episode of the NSGC podcast series. Thank you for joining us to learn all about the importance of self-care for genetic counselors. Interested in learning more about the NSGC JEMF Award? Visit www.nsgc.org forward slash JEMF for more information. Visit our podcast page at www.nsgc.org forward slash podcasts to follow today's speakers on Twitter. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Kalita Leoquat. We'll see you next time.